And so I was like, okay. And as I was preparing this sermon, I was like, ah, this is, I think, one little aspect of how church can be different for us in America. How church can be more like the church was in the first century. And again, remember, American churches are not doing anything wrong necessarily. But I believe that God is calling us to do something different. This pulpit is not just for one man's voice. We are a collective body. We learned that last week. Living stones grounded on the living stone, Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone. Our purpose and our function is to be a priesthood who offers spiritual sacrifices. We talked about what spiritual sacrifices were. We unpacked all of it. And then we were left thinking, is this a reflection of my life? Is what we read and what we studied today a reflection of my life? It's a difficult question that nobody can answer for you but you. And so I'm standing here today, and I'm looking at the manuscript, and I'm going, okay, we've got two verses to work our way through this morning. Just two verses. That's the shortest sermon that I've ever attempted to preach. And then God kind of chuckled. And he's like, man, you never do anything short. And I, he laughed a little bit more, and he's like, you think this is going to be easy, this is going to be difficult. And it probably took me longer than it takes me to do five, six, or seven verses to write this one this one sermon on two verses. And I was like, what is going on, Lord? And he's like, do you want to be obedient? It just kept coming back to that. Do you want to be obedient? And I was like, ah, yes, I do. And he was like, okay, then get ready to do something different. Something unscripted. That was not something that Brent and I colluded on. Normally in the church, and I know this to be true because I have two brothers and I have a father, and they're in three different churches in the lower 48. And, you know, the elders have to approve who comes up here and speaks. Mm -hmm. The elders have to vet who's going to say what. The elders are going to make sure that nothing is said that shouldn't be said. Paul says, don't quench the spirit. In the moment, when God wants to move, if the elders in the church have not approved that move, then it's not going to happen. And I'm saying, not here. Not in this church. Not in our family. We have spirit-filled believers. God is tabernacling in each and every one of us, and he's simultaneously moving in our midst. If he's going to call me to call on one of you to speak, then you should be confident to speak in this room. Why? Because we're a family. And if we can't speak confidently and comfortably in here, how are we going to speak confidently and comfortably out there? This is the training ground, is it not? Okay, so we're entering into something that's going to look a little bit different from our standard Sunday this morning. And that's okay. Is it going to be perfect? Probably not. I've never done this. But then again, I've never planned any church until a year ago, and here we are today. Right? So who's faithful? Not me. God's faithful, right? When we are faithless, who's the covenant keeper? Yahweh. Jesus Christ. So it's a pleasure, right? And it's a privilege for me to be here this morning as we get to run this kind of test on what it is that we're doing today. It's a pleasure and a privilege because if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be able to do this. I wouldn't be able to be obedient to God if it weren't for you. So I'm thankful. First of all, let me tell you that I'm thankful that you're here. The sun is shining. The, the break is on the horizon. Right? Yeah. Who wants to be inside after a long winter of dark, right? And the seats are reflective of that reality. And then there are those who are here. And so I'm telling you, I'm grateful that you showed up this morning. Why don't we take a moment to pray, and then we can look to the text for this morning and see what it is that God has in store for us. Father, thank you for shaking us up, Lord. Thank you for being our foundation and then testing the foundation that we claim to stand on. Thank you for confronting us, Lord, with the reality that we don't necessarily need to do what everybody else is doing. We just need to do what you're asking us to do. Father, thank you for sending your Son into the world. Giving him the 
opportunity to take on flesh so that he could prove himself worthy as the perfect sacrifice so that he could willingly shed his precious blood so that we could be rescued, redeemed, and reconciled back to you from the realm of darkness into your marvelous, wonderful light. This is your gospel, God. It's your good news. It's the message that we not only embrace, it's the message that we proclaim. It's the message that we attempt to live out. I ask, Father, that you would bless this morning's study, that you would keep us attentive, and that you would give us the ability to break down cultural norms that keep us comfortable so that we can enter into the space that you are calling us to enter into, the space where you are, the space that we need to be in. So, Father, bless what we're doing as we strive to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, we're in a sermon series on 1 Peter. And uh, if you're here today for the first time, you're just going to kind of dive in to right where we're at. And that's okay. Uh, we try to go verse by verse through a letter, through a book. We try to make sure that we understand the author's perspective, what it was that the audience understood. We are in an attempt to get after the truth of the text so that we can understand it how God intended it to be communicated so that we can then extrapolate our, our understanding and our application. All right? So if you're new here, that's kind of our jam. We're kind of into biblical interpretation and we turn to the text and we ask what it is that God was saying then because he's saying the same thing today. And then we try to draw our application from there to today. And then we leave here feeling like actually knowing that we've been equipped to live today and the days in the future even more for his glory so that we can image him more properly. Now, we're going to turn to the text. We're in 1 Peter. Today we're dealing with chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. All right? We're reading from the ESV in the series. Peter begins in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's go back. We're going to read through this one more time. But I want to point something out to you guys. We're going to break our Western individualistic lens today if it's the last thing we do. <laughs> this word right here, but you. You is a pluralistic term. Peter does not have in his mind writing to an individual or to the individual. He is writing to the church, the elect people of God in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He is writing to the assembly or the congregation, right? So let's get this out of our mind that Peter's speaking to me and only me. Or maybe he's only speaking to Kenyan and I don't have to listen. No, no, no. Peter's talking to all of us, all right? But you. The assembly or the congregation are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, plural, for his own possession, that you, the congregation or the assembly, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, plural, but now you are God's people, plural. Once you had not received mercy, but now you, the congregation or the assembly of God, are or have received mercy. Do we get it? Okay. Yes. We're not individualistic this morning. We are communalistic. Yes, we are in America, but we need to read the text in its context. Now, we're coming off the heels of verse 4 through 8, right? And in verse 4 through 8, Peter marks out Jesus as the dividing line. It's true. Jesus the Messiah is the dividing line. You're either a believer in Jesus or you are not a believer in Jesus. You are either the stone, and you honor the stone, and he honors you, or you reject the stone, and you stumble over it. Peter could not be any clearer 
in the previous verses that were studied last week. Jesus is the divine one. Now, coming off this intense portion of the text, the apostle offers a wonderful word of encouragement to the community of saints throughout five different Roman provinces. Can you guys read this next slide for me out loud, please? What a our chosen race, our royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. You know, Peter's writing to a church that is suffering. It's a church that's composed largely of Gentiles throughout the Roman provinces, and they are suffering. They're not suffering massive governmental punishments. They're suffering local punishment, which is taking on the form of, like, rejection and ostracization because they don't fit the cultural moment. Now, how do we know this to be true? Well, we stand on the shoulders of the scholars. New Testament scholar Dennis Edwards reminds us that during the first century, Christians did not fit well into their cultural context and into the corporal context. They didn't. You know? We were just watching a video, and the, the outreach was called Outsiders. We look at the marginalized in our community, and we see them as the outsider. In the first century, Christians were the outsider. As modern students of the text, we need to remember that we live in a world now that is largely pragmatic, where they lived in a world that was dominated by honor and shame. The Christian community found no honor among their unbelieving contemporaries, and they were without a doubt subject to shame and ridicule from their peers. What do you mean you don't worship Dionysus anymore? What do you mean you don't participate in the cult worship of Caesar? How are you supposed to shop in the marketplace? What do you mean you've given up the pantheon of gods for the God? What do you mean you worship the unseen when we have all of these gods that have been seen? Out. Out. And keep that message to yourself. Don't go spreading that message. Don't go spreading that gospel. Don't go trying to proselytize. Don't go trying to evangelize. That is not the tradition here. Christians were not accepted in their cultural context. This is why Peter found it necessary. He finds it necessary to remind his loved ones of their identity in Christ. And how does he do that? Look at those titles. Look at those collective titles. That's a beautiful way to bring a word of encouragement to those who are suffering. To those who are struggling with identity. This is your identity. To those who think that they are without a function and a purpose. Peter says, no, you have a function and a purpose. It's as if we can hear him say, don't focus on what it is that humanity thinks about you. Rather, hold fast to what it is that God has said about Are we going to be controlled and put ourselves in submission to the cultural norms? Or are we going to submit and bend the knee to the king who created it all and keeps it all together? That's the question. And whose opinion are we more worried about? You can't answer one question without knowing the answer to the follow-up. Peter says, hold fast to what it is that God has said about you. Now, some of us might be thinking, ah, God didn't write this letter, Peter did. I'd say you're absolutely right. Inspiration is not something that dictates Peter's eyes rolling in the back of his head and falling into a trance and scribing something out and waking up and being like, that's really good! <laughs> that's not how it works. And yes, although God does verbally inspire portions of the text, not all of it is verbally dictated by God. That would be Islam. That would be the Quran that was dictated by Allah. Yahweh did not verbally dictate the entirety of the text. He used people to write under inspiration about his character, his nature, 
giving us what we refer to as the special revelation in light of his natural revelation. But Yahweh did say, he did say, you are a chosen race. These are the words of God. He did say, you are a royal priesthood. It was Yahweh who said, you are a holy nation, and it was Yahweh who said, you will be my people. These are the words of the creator and the sustainer of the universe. This is why, in essence, Peter can say, hold fast to what it is that God has said about you. We are interested in what it is that God has to say around here. It should be the loudest, clearest voice we hear. Once again, no surprise, the language of Peter in this portion of the letter is steeped in the text of the Old Testament. Peter's not making any of this up. He's not shooting from the hip like I am today and how this service is actually going to work itself out. Peter is grounded in the text of the Hebrew Scriptures. When Peter writes, you are a chosen race, he is referring his audience back to the text of Isaiah. Tom, can I get you to stand up and read loud and proud for the congregation Isaiah chapter 43, verse 16 through 21. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 16 through 21. You can turn it in your own Bibles if you have one with you today. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide the water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give to drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may complain my praise. There it is. The opening line in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 16. Thus says Yahweh. It's God who is speaking to Yahweh his prophet, and it is Isaiah the prophet who represents God to the people of Israel. Now, as we read through this, we get a flavor of the Exodus in the beginning. As we read through this, we see that God is in the business of restoration. As we come to verse 20, we read that it is Yahweh who gives drink to his chosen people, the people whom he formed for himself. And the purpose is so that they may declare his praise. Sound like something Peter might be saying in verse 9? Just as the prophet Isaiah gives God the glory for what will inevitably be the future restoration of Israel from exile, so Peter gives God the glory for his acts of great grace as God continues to rescue and redeem people from a life of spiritual exile. We have a physical example in the text of the Hebrew Scriptures, and we have the spiritual reality in the New Covenant in the New Testament in what Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. It's interesting how God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and how he still has the ability to change what it is that he's doing and be consistent. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Amen. When we read 1 Peter in the light of Isaiah, we come to understand that election is not just for one's privilege. We also come to understand that election is not just for one's status. When we read 1 Peter in the light of Isaiah, we come to understand that election functions as the spark for an intimate praise of God's great grace. 
And we praise him for his great grace because he, ex he has extended this grace and this mercy to the whole of humanity. This is our message. And when we preach this message, we call people to repent in the midst of preaching the message. When we call them to repent, we call them to what? To turn to God. No different than what Peter did when Christ called him. No different than what the early church experienced when they heard the gospel. No different than what we did when we heard the gospel. Amen? Amen. God's great acts of mercy and God's great acts of grace. Where he split the sea and he watered Israel in the desert, he's raising people to newness of life today. Ask me what the greater miracle is. I'll say taking someone from darkness and putting them in light any day over splitting some seed or splitting a rock and water and nation. That's the real miracle. Spiritual life in the midst of spiritual death is the ultimate miracle. So we are not cessationists. God is in the business of redeeming and reconciling and rescuing all people who will turn to him. And the way that they do that is through the priesthood proclaiming the excellencies of his mercy. Next, Peter states that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a holy nation. It's here that Peter's dependent on the text of Exodus. So just as we prove Peter is dependent on the text of Isaiah, we're now going to prove that Peter is dependent on the text of Exodus. Matt, Matt Cain, can you stand up and read for us? Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I love the fact that Isaiah picks up on the language of the Torah in 16, 17, 18, and 19 by talking about what it was that God did that was miraculous in Israel's history. Because we're seeing the same message here. In Exodus, which means the same way that Isaiah drew on the text of Torah to the same way that Peter draws on the text of the prophets. God is consistently doing the same thing in different ways. This is a conditional clause. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. This is a sobering message for the church because God has extended the opportunity to be in covenant relationship but it is interdependent on both sides of those entering into the covenant. Obedience is required. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and when you are obedient, you will be my treasured possession. Very similar to the last title in the theater, right? A people for myself. It's very similar to what Isaiah writes in verse 22, a people for myself. Look at this. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And God instructed Moses, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now both Thomas Schreiner and Daryl Charles observed that the title kingdom of priests in the Greek translation of Exodus is synonymous with title of the royal priesthood in 1 Peter. Raise your hand if you've taken Greek courses and you can read the original languages. Alright, the standard is pretty level here. Which is why we stand on the shoulders of those who do, right? We look to see that these people are saying, when you read the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and when you read 1 Peter, the terms are synonymous. They're translated differently in English, but the terms in the original language are synonymous. So Peter is drawing on the text of Exodus. This is how we know this to be true. He's quoting Exodus chapter 19. Now, I don't know about you, 
But I find it interesting that in the Latin, the word for priest is pontifex. You guys ever heard that word, pontifex? Let me hear you say it. Now here's the deal. This term in the Latin translates to bridge builder in the English language. A bridge builder in the English language. This teaches us that one of the many responsibilities of a priest is to build a bridge so that others may come to God. Under Mosaic legislation, Israel's priesthood was such that they were to image the glory of Yahweh to the surrounding nations. The whole purpose of Israel as a nation displaying the glory of God to those who lived around them was so that the nations would see, so that they would have evidence that there is no God who rivals Yahweh. That was the point. And when we read First Peter, according to Peter, not much has changed. This is supposed to be, yeah. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why has God chosen us? Why has God given us a function and a purpose that works itself out in a priestly role? Why has he set us apart? Why has he made us our own? Well, Peter tells us that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not much has changed. In our study last week, we discovered that our purpose and our function as living stones is to be the holy priesthood. And we know that the purpose is to offer spiritual sacrifices. We need to remember that our purpose is to be on one end of the scale, and our function is to offer on the other. And these things need to be held in tension. One cannot tip the other. They need to be held in tension, purpose and function, to be and to offer. When I read this, when I look at this and when I read this, I am very conflicted. I can't help but ask myself, when I'm alone and I'm sitting there and I'm reading this, Matt, Matt, does the testimony of your life build bridges or does it dig ditches? Because Peter says that as a priest, I'm supposed to be a bridge builder. What is the testimony of my life? Am I a bridge builder or a ditch digger? I was like, I want to answer that question, Lord. That's a tough one. You're asking me about every moment of every day. That's so difficult. What does my life look like? I don't want to look in the mirror. But those who know me best, make an answer. Those who I spend the majority of my time with, they can answer, but the question still looms. Would they describe me as someone who couldn't help but proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness? Or would they question my claim to Christianity? I can't answer that for them. I can just pray that the answer would be the former, not the latter. Again, it depends on what it is that I choose to do. The level of responsibility that God has put on us is vast. It is vast. And we should not take our claim to Christianity as if we were answering any other question that existed. We should put it as the highest priority. We should revisit answering that question with frequency. Daily, do I serve God in all that I do? Do I love him in all that I say? Is my heart, soul, mind, and strength, is my one being loyal or is it disloyal? That's something that we should be asking ourselves with frequency. Are we bridge builders, church? 
Are we bridge builders? Do our lives reflect the story of God's glory to those that we do life with on a daily basis? Or would they say that we're ditch diggers? I'm not really truly interested in my own opinion as much as I'm interested in what it is that they would have to say about me. Because my actions will speak louder than my words. And our actions should speak louder than our words as a community. And I want to know, AC squared, are we British builders? What's a ditch digger? A ditch digger, that's just my metaphor for somebody who puts something out there to stumble in, right? We're not supposed to be a stumbling block. People stumble and fall into ditches. They're not big holes, but they're just big enough to cause a problem, right? And so you can roll your ankle, you can break your leg, you can have a pretty substantial injury in the ditch. And we don't want to be setting up ditches for people to stumble in. We want to be building bridges that go over the vast gap that help connect people to God. Does that make sense? Thank you for asking that. Silence, church. According to Peter, silence is not an option for those of us who call on God's Father. Silence is not an option for the obedient children of God. Silence is not an option for the holy priesthood whose purpose and function is to live in service to the king. Silence is off the table. Peter says our task is simple. As the people of God, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom of marvelous light. What's a bridge builder? It's someone who does that. With consistency. Someone who does that from a position of humility. Someone who does that because they know and they remember where it is that they came from and they have an understanding of where it is that God's taking them. That's what a bridge builder looks like. Silence is not an option. If we hope to accomplish this task, if we have any hope of accomplishing this task, if we desire to do this well, we must never forget where we have come from. We cannot forget where we have come from. If we forget where we have come from, we will inevitably forget what God has accomplished on our behalf. It's part of our testimony. God is the great emancipator. He is the great deliverer. He is the one who has redeemed us. He is the perfect sacrifice. He ransomed us from the, pe from the penalty of sin. Like, we owe him our all. We live for him Daily. This is the God that we serve. Or is it? Sometimes I have to look myself in the mirror and I have to ask myself, who are you serving today, Matt? Because it sure seems like you're serving yourself. It seems like you're willing to see everybody as a stepping stone so you can get where you want to be. And then what? You think you're going to be happy? Until you turn around and you look at the wake of destruction. Just so you can get to the place you thought you wanted to be. Not the place that God intended you to be. Can you guys read this for me, please? Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you are not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. I love this verse because I read verse 8 in the light of verse 10. We closed last week's sermon out and there were a lot of questions on the faces of people as I was talking. And that's okay. We're not looking for agreement here in everything, but we are looking for unity in faith through Christ. But I read what it is that Peter's communicating 
through the lens of verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Anybody know where this comes from? That's a good one. That's, that's correct. That's correct. Yes. This is a citation from the prophet Hosea. This is come, this comes from the prophets. Here he's citing the prophet Hosea, which means that once again he's drawing on the text of the Old Testament, which means that God had this message for ethnic Israel. Again, the consistency of the message, God has the same message for the church universal. Peter inserts in verse 10 a poetic expression that is rooted in the prophets. And he does this to remind his loved ones of the great grace and the great mercy which they themselves have experienced. It is the same grace and the same mercy that we have experienced. Listen to the wisdom. I'm going to butcher this name, but I'm going to try to say it. He's Brazilian. Listen to the wisdom of Valdir Strunel. Does that sound right? Okay, we'll go with that. Forgive me, Valdir. <laughs> this guy is courageous in his writings. He's, I mean, I, I, I read just a portion of some of the stuff that he's written, and I was like, wow, this guy's bold. Right? This guy challenges the status quo, and I happen to like that. He's a guy who's willing to shake somebody up. He asks the question, what is, in fact, the difference between Christians, the insiders, and the non-Christians, the outsiders? He says, is there really such a big difference between them? He says, the answer is both yes and no. Mm -hmm. Allow him to explain. Yes, the difference is between life and death. The insiders have been born anew. They have been born anew through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were ransomed from the feudal ways which they had inherited from their fathers. They were built into a spiritual house in and on the precious cornerstone. All quotations. But on the other hand, he says, on the other hand, there's not such a big difference between the insiders and the outsiders. He says, time, time is the difference. For some of us, it may have been years. For some of us, maybe just months or days. But at some point in all of our history, we have all been together in the same feudal situation. All of us. In verse 9, the author of the letter reminds us that at one point, we too lived in darkness. That at one point, we too were without mercy. And that at one point, we were not the people of God. The only difference, he says, between us and them is God's mercy and time. The remarkable nature of salvation is accomplished through the creative, restorative mercy of God and God alone. However, we are required to offer a proper response to the gospel of God. And all of us would affirm, those of us in Christ would say, we have. We have offered the proper response. This is why Peter's confident to write to the early church. Peter's confident to write to those who were formerly not a people and tell them they have been made the people of God. This is the good news of the gospel. You who were once far off, Paul would say, have been brought near. Ephesians. So now we have synonymous theology across the New Testament. From the Pharisee of Pharisees to the fishermen. All of us at one time or another were at enmity with God. Now we have a brand new with James. 
Saints, we must never look down. We must never look down on the outsider. Because at one point, we suffer the same condition. How easily we forget. How easily we thumb them, or whatever the, the phrase is. We look down our nose at them. How easily we scoff at the non-believer, at the outsider, forgetting that time and the mercy of God is the only difference between us and them. When Christ looked at those who rejected him, he looked through the lens of compassion. How often, he said, I tried to gather you like a mother hen. You know that mother hens bring their chicks under their wings for protection, right? And he says, but you refuse. And when he was praying his great high priestly prayer, he looked out over the whole city of Jerusalem. Roman individuals, Gentile individuals, and Jewish individuals. And he says, I have tried to collect. And in the midst of your rejection, I will voluntarily lay my life. There is zero looking down on in the life of Christ. There is the call to rise up and step out of sin, but there is zero looking down on. While we were at enmity with him, he died for us. We must never be found guilty of looking down on the outsider. If we are found guilty of looking down on the outsider, then we have by proxy proven that we have forgotten where we came from. And if we forget, if we forget that we render ourselves incapable of proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful life. God forbid that our family here at AC Square fall prey to an awful reality of forgetfulness. We must always remember. We must never forget. Now, we have worked our way in our standard form of exegesis through the text. And this is where we turn the corner for the final 15 minutes. This is where we do something different. This is where we strive to be like the first century church in what it is that we're doing. God is shaking things up in me, which means he's going to be shaking things up in us. And I don't know what else to do but to be obedient. Are you guys ready for me to shake some things up? All right. We're a family, right? All right, come on up here, Art. This is not totally on plan. Come on up here, Art. Can we get some volume on this microphone? I don't want you to be nervous, right? It's just you and me. We're just having a conversation. Right? This is our family. I'm not nervous. Okay. All right. It's no different than a family Sunday. But I'm going to ask you some questions that I got here. Right? Are you ready to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Absolutely. Amen. This is my brother in the Lord. And by proxy, he's your brother in the Lord. Yeah. You know that this is the eternal relationship that we have going on right now? Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful reality, right? So, where were you when you first heard and responded to the gospel? I, I heard it as a child. Um, but the good news part of it really didn't sink in until a lot later. I mean, I was baptized when I was seven, and I knew that there was mercy. Um, at the time, I thought it was something I had to keep earning. So, it's been, I'm a very slow learner. I sure that would be But I was, we were in the time after reading in Romans this morning talking about justice, getting what you deserve, mercy, not getting what you deserve, grace, getting what you don't deserve. And uh, yeah, I want to keep 
learn more about grace every day. We will for eternity. Amen. I agree with you. So what was your life like leading up to the moment when you heard your responding to the gospel? Um, it was kind of like <coughs> and Pilgrim's Progress. When you got off the path and thought that there was a shortcut to the celestial city and he uh, he saw this big ominous mountain that looked like it was gonna fall on him. Um, just knowing that I couldn't keep the law and wondering how everybody else seemed to be able to do it. And are they faking it or are they somehow different than I am? And just that's yeah, horrible. Did you like put an evangelist in your life to call you back to the back? Sure did. Amen. What has your life been like since you responded to the gospel? Um, I wish I could say that it's been just a straight trajectory towards the celestial city. We've never done I've run away from him. Um, I've turned my back on him and um, backslidden. And every time I've done that, He's reached out or sent someone to reach out, like Galatians 6 1. If I'm caught in a sin, he'll send someone gently, not, you know, hook up the, the rope, hook up truck and yank me out of the bush that I'm caught in, but gently yeah. and put me back on the path. And so I don't want to keep running away. I don't want to veer off the path. Um, I love where he's put me and where he's calling me to. I don't feel driven. I don't like the word driven. I, I, I agree with text driven, but I like the term led. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because the enemies are driven away. The wolves are driven away. The sheep are led. That's right. So I feel like he's leading. That's good. That's good. Give him a round of applause. This is how you exegete the text in a practical sense. You look at what Paul, what Peter is saying, and you ask, how do I proclaim the excellencies of him who has called me out of darkness into his marvelous light? We are looking to transform our city, aren't we? Yeah. How can we transform our city if we cannot confidently and comfortably share what it is that God has accomplished in us? Amen. Right? Come to you. Come here. <laughs> This is my sister yes. in the Lord. Right? How do you say brother in Russian? Brah. Yeah. This is an internal relationship that we have. You know that? Yes. Because of Christ. Is it true if I were to ask you, you know, we, it seems like we've learned that there's no such thing as a lifelong Christian today. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, is it true if I were to say at one time in your life were you not a people? It's true. At one time you did not receive mercy. Oh no. What did your life look like in that in that portion? Of um, I think like I was sad. I was sad and it was heavy because I thought that I have to do everything on my own and it's impossible. And this happiness of doing everything on my own and not succeeding was driving me down. Yeah. Sad. Lost. Yes. Sad. Lost. Yeah. But you did at one point in your life you heard the gospel. Yes. That's the best thing I've ever done. That's the best thing. I can't preach that. Mm -hmm. She can just speak that as a part of her life's experience and testimony. And we can either choose to believe her or we can choose to reject what it is that she's saying. But I'm going to choose to believe her because I believe that Tati has a personal integrity. Right, Tom? You would not have married her if she was not a woman of integrity, right? Uh, what is the term from Ruth? Anybody remember? Isha Hael, a woman of war. Right? You would say, not a belly doctor. Amen, right? So, you heard the gospel. Where were you when you heard the gospel for the first time? Um, it's like I said, 
I heard the gospel when I was 10. I was going to the church with my family. Uh, it really, I accepted the good news and realized what Jesus did for me probably like seven years ago. And that's when my life was transformed tremendously. Amen. So tell me how was Oh my goodness. <laughs> when you accept the good news and when you realize what Jesus did for you on the cross, like we were talking about sharing the gospel, that we have we want to proclaim the excellences. You cannot hide it because that's the good news that happened to you and you want the whole world to hear it. Like that's the best news that happened. We shared it. We shared something cool happening with us and like we want to tell it to everyone. So that's how it felt. When I realized that Jesus died on the cross, I didn't deserve it. And also he invited me to become to, to be transformed into his image day after day. And he's gonna help me with that. I couldn't give it to myself. Okay. I I can say that I was relieved because I'm not on my own anymore and I don't have to strive anymore. I can be in his presence and I can walk with him like this. And I know he's there for me, no matter what's happening. Yeah, it just, it's a lot. I mean, I just, I feel safe because I have Jesus. Amen. So from lost and sad to safe and joyful. Yes. So good. This is what it looks like, church. Yeah. To live out what it is that Peter is writing. Yeah. This is what I believe the church in the first century looked like. When we read Corinthians and Paul tells us this is what an orderly service has as components in it, these are key components in the service. Amen. And somehow we got so far off track that we're just coming to hear one person talk about the text. Yeah. We're preaching that. It's ridiculous. Amen. You are all spirit-filled. Yeah. You are all redeemed. Yes. You all have a testimony. You all have a story. And your story is important because it's by the blood of the Lamb and the power of the testimony that the enemy has been defeated. Yeah. yeah. So but do we know the story of God's glory? I asked us that question two weeks ago. Do we know where we came from together? Because if we don't know where we came from together, we can't know where we're going. Yeah. There was no way that I knew I was going to be able to preach this sermon two weeks ago. And God was like, I've got it under control, man. Yeah. Are you going to be obedient? Praise God. And the response was, yes, even though it's very uncomfortable. Because here we are today, and you're hearing actual preaching. Yeah. Not teaching. You've heard actual preaching from Mark, and actual preaching from Katya. And we got time for one more. Yeah, that's so good. So good. Matt Cain, come on up here, brother. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, let's go. You want to proclaim the excellencies of God today? Yes, sir. Amen. So, uh, you know, take a couple of minutes and share with us uh, the fact, well, I guess let me ask this question first, right? Would you like Katya to affirm that at one time you were far off? Yes. Yeah. But, but for the grace of God, right? Yes. But for the message of the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the sovereignty of God and the preaching of the word, right? This is what Paul talks about. The beautiful feet of those who proclaim the gospel of salvation. Are you the product of that? I am. Amen. Me too. Anybody else in the house a product of that today? Yeah. All right. So why don't you, you know, share with us where you were first at when you heard and responded to the gospel? Well, I was in a real life place, if you guys heard mine. Message them. A few months back, uh, I was a alcoholic. Uh, I was in a real dark place. Uh, my uh, my family was, you know, walking on shells all the time, and uh, I was just a miserable human being. And so, in the midst of your misery, you heard the gospel being proclaimed. So my uh, uncle came over one day 
and just invited him to his church. And I could tell that there was something different about him. He didn't bring the message to me that day, but uh, I could tell that he was different because I used to hang out with the guy. And uh, and he actually brought me to a church. And uh, I'd go hung over Sunday after Sunday, but liked what I was hearing. And uh, honestly, what happened to me, so God sometimes has to show you a physical miracle in order to bring you to the house. And as I was uh, leaving the house that day, we had one of those locks that, you know, you just, you close the door and it's locked. You didn't have the key, you never the key, and we had a lot of keys actually inside. And I went into a rage over it. And I'm just like, you know what, forget all this, I'm not going to do this. And I had heard, I had heard the gospel prior to that. So I went downstairs, started screaming at the family, went back upstairs, was about to break the door down, decided not to do that, I went back downstairs, and then I just finally went back upstairs, I'm like, I'm about to do it, and as I was about to put my shoulder into the door, I heard something cling, and all of a sudden I looked at the keyhole, and there were the keys swinging back and forth, back and forth, and I kid you not, at that point, Holy Spirit went into me and I went to church and and I will I would like to say like you guys did I never looked back but I did the same thing I you know God had to keep pulling me back and pulling me back in he pulled me back in faithfully for the last seven years amen. Amen. amen so what is the major difference you would say when you think about your life then and your life now what is the one thing that stands out to you most um, the anger is gone. The love for people is there. Yeah. Give him a round of applause. Now, yeah. Can I attest to this testimony? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, we could go all day. As far as I'm concerned, I work with Matt, and I have worked with Matt the last few years. And when I started working, he was my mentor, trainer. I've never heard this testimony until this now. But what he's saying, that person, I don't know that person because Matt is the most chillest, level-headed, kind, and absolutely helpful person that I work with. And what you're saying, I was like, it's not true because that's not who you are. Amen. We want is what I see and it is glory to God. Because what you describe it, I don't know what you describe it. That's not you. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, see, this is how we do it, church. The same two together and they fellowship. Is it important that you hear from me? Maybe. <laughs> That's my answer. Is it important that we're hearing from one another? Absolutely. Absolutely. My voice pales in comparison to the volume of your collective voice. And that's how it should be. My voice should pale in comparison to the collective volume of the congregation's voice. Because God is moving in each of us. Yeah. We are the living stones. We are grounded on the living stone. Christ is the cornerstone. This is the gospel. We embrace it. Now we proclaim the transformative power of it as we talk about the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is no such thing as a silent priest in the church of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So that's how we apply this message. Look, we have to. We have to remember. We have to remember. And we have to remember so that we do not forget. When I tell my wife, hey, don't forget to tell me, she's like, no. Ask me to remember to tell you. Because if you say, don't forget, I'm going to forget. Right? It's the power of the word. There's life and death in the tongues. My wife is a woman of Proverbs. She's wise. That's why I married her. Because I'm not. Right? And I needed that. I needed that filter. But we have to remember. When we, when we embrace the idea that we have the opportunity to forget, 
we render ourselves incapable of being obedient to God. We cannot forget. We cannot forget our own testimonies, and we cannot forget the testimony of Art. We cannot forget the testimony of Katya. We cannot forget the testimony of Matt, and we cannot forget the testimony of Dasha. Yeah. All of these stories are our stories, and the one thing that ties all of them together is Jesus Christ. Faith in the finished work of the person, word, and work of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So let's proclaim. We bought some donuts. Deb's cut them up. They're on the back table, right? She's going to put them on the back table. Instead of rushing out of here today, we are attempting to facilitate the safe space to grab some food and over a snack share the excellencies of God's glorious deeds in our lives with one another. Can we do that? Five minutes, ten minutes, a half an hour, whatever your schedule allows for. Share the story of God's glory in your life with someone that you don't know so that they can leave here and go, oh my gosh, God did the same thing in their life that he did in mine. You are wonderful. Amen? Amen. Alright, I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come up here and we're going to sing No Longer Slaves because I feel like that is pretty like right on point with what we're talking about. Here. We're no longer slaves. We're children of God. Amen? Alright, Father, thank you for the message that you put in the mouths of your prophets and your apostles. Thank you for giving them the life experience that they needed so that they could write the message under the inspiration of your spirit. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us today through your people. Thank you, God, for continuing to do marvelous, miraculous, mighty works of saving people from darkness and transferring them into light, from raising them from spiritual death and putting them into the kingdom of God. Lord, we thank you that you are in the business of saving. We are so grateful for your grace and so grateful for your mercy. Things which, as we heard today, we are not deserving of, but things that you gave us anyway. We pray, Father, that we would honor you in our lives and that each day we would strive to be vocal about your marvelous deeds. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you need